The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open to Esther 4 if you haven't already. And we got to jump in fast and hit the ground moving. We got to do a little bit of review because this entire book honestly is a little bit like a Rube Goldberg machine. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. It's one of those things where you drop a ball and it hits this thing that hits that thing that goes around. And if you ever played the game Mousetrap as a kid, which you only did if you grew up in the 80s and it took 30 minutes to set up and five minutes to play. But that's beside the point. That's what a Rube Goldberg machine is. And the book of Esther works that way. One, le- one thing, one event just leads to the next and they just keep falling like dominoes and you have to get a picture of the whole to understand what's going on individually. So last week, we began to kind of hit the turning point in the book of Esther. We saw Mordecai, a man who had lived as a Jew, compromised in Persia. He kept his Jewish identity hidden. We saw him begin to wake up from his life of compromise and begin to stand up upon the promises of God. He refused to bow to Haman the Agagite. In fact, we saw that his refusal to bow to Haman is going to result in all of the Jews in all of Persia being forced to wake up from their lives of compromise. Because that refusal to bow, it angered Haman so much. His pride couldn't take it so much that on the eve of Passover, we saw Haman manipulate good old King Headache Xerxes, right? He manipulates King Xerxes into issuing a decree that all the Jews are to be annihilated destroyed throughout all of Persia. And the Jews receive that word on the eve of Passover, and it begs the question, will they stand upon the promises of God? The very promise of Passover that they're about to observe, the promise that he's a faithful God who will ultimately rescue his people. Will they stand on that promise? What would it look like for the Jews to stand upon the promises of God in the midst of an environment like Persia that is so hostile and threatening their very life as the people of God? What would it look like for the Jews? What would it look like for Mordecai? What would it look like for Esther to stand on the promises of God in the midst of Persia? What would it look like for us? Like, this is how we concluded last week with this challenge. For us to stand on the promise of God, even in the midst of our modern day, very Persia-like culture. But, But we didn't answer the question, what does that look like? And we've got to tackle that because I fear, I fear that after last week, after after looking at the ways that Persia doesn't deliver on its promises, after looking at the ways that Persia promotes what's poisonous, and even seeing how our own culture promotes money, sex, power, those are the things specifically addressed in the book of Esther because it's what all human beings have pursued throughout all of time. Even when we looked at those things and saw how our culture promotes them in a poisonous way, just like Persia, my fear is that as a result of seeing that, we might think that standing on the promises of God looks like being anti-Persia anti our culture. It's poisonous, so we should set ourselves against it as the people of God. This is what many Christians assume. 
And when they do, when they assume that for us to be faithful to the gospel, faithful to God, stand on his promises, when they assume that means that we have to be against our culture, anti it, that assumption plays itself out in one of two actions. Withdrawal or war. Like, you either withdraw from culture, because it's poisonous, I can't be contaminated by it, and set up my own little Christian fence Only read Christian books, only watch Christian movies, only hang out with other Christians and go to Christian coffee shops. There's poisonous out there. So either withdraw from culture as to not be poisoned by it, or I make war on the culture. Stand in judgment over it and its many sins, eager to pronounce condemnation, eager to probably more tweet and post-condemnation. And both withdrawal from culture and making war on culture, both of those things are loveless actions. One fails to love by leaving. The other fails to love by lashing out in self-righteous hate. And I've got to ask, is that really what it looks like to stand on the promises of God? To be anti-Persia, anti-our culture. I believe that Esther chapter 4 shows us a different way. Different from withdrawal, different from war, a different way that few of us are willing to take because it shows us a way that looks like weakness. It shows us a way that looks like foolishness. What is this way? As we completely round the corner of the turning point of this book, as we see this week Esther wake up, like Mordecai did, we see her wake up from her compliance for her to stand on the promises of God. What does it look like for her? What does it look like for us? How do we stand on the promises of God in the midst of Persia? I want us to see three things in answer to that question. It'll take us just a minute to get there. Got a lot of story to cover. Three things in answer to that question. Let's see them together. Esther chapter 4, look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, that's the decree that had gone out for the annihilation of the Jews, when he learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put sackcloth and ashes on, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So Mordecai hears about this irrevocable decree issued by Haman in the name of the king, that in 11 months, all the Jews are to be killed. And through Mordecai's reaction, we see just how much he has woken up from his life of compromise. Do we not? I mean, this is a man who spent his whole life keeping his Jewish identity hidden from everyone, and now he publicly identifies as a part of the people of God in front of everyone. He doesn't stay in the citadel. He goes out into the city. He he puts on sackcloth. Think like coffee bean bag. He, he, He puts on sackcloth pours ash over his head. These are, these are all external signs meant to display his internal feelings. It was common practice to do this when you were in mourning in the ancient world. It's, it's kind of the ancient world's version of wearing black to a funeral, but just a tad bit more expressive. And he doesn't just put on these external signs. He, he lets his internal feelings out. He cries out. 
He cries out with all the people of God throughout the entire empire because the Jews throughout the empire join him in his cries. Look at verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai identifies with the people of God as they cry out to God. And if you're... If you're a sharp listener, you you may be thinking, Jonathan, the text doesn't say that the people cry out to God. That's correct. It does not. We've repeated that this book never mentions God. The author explicitly doesn't mention God throughout this book because he is challenging us to see if we can tell when God is present, even when it seems like he's absent. He's challenging us to do that right here. The author doesn't explicitly tell us that the people are crying out to God, but he means for us to see it. I know that because of the specific phrase at the end of verse 3. Namely, it says the Jews mourned with fasting and weeping and lamenting. That exact phraseology in the Hebrew is found in one other place in the Hebrew Bible, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, where God calls out to his people, return to me. We began our service with a call and response based on the Scripture. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with lamenting. The exact same phrase as Esther 4. And what we're going to see, if that was the only connection, then maybe we don't really have a connection. But what we're going to see is that's not the only parallel between Esther 4 and Joel chapter 2. And any time a biblical author lifts the exact wording from another place in Scripture, they are telling you, compare these two things. Interpret them in light of one another. That over there has something to do, something that I want you to see with what's going on over here. The author of Esther is saying that what is happening amongst the Jews in Persia is the very thing described in Joel 2. They're returning to the Lord with all their heart. See it through fasting, weeping, lamenting. See them waking up from their lives of compromise to stand on the promises of God. And the question that we all start feeling at this point in the story is, will Esther wake up with them? She's separated from them, secluded from this community. She's not in the city. She's in the citadel. We're going to see in just a second, she doesn't even know what's going on. She's insulated and comfortable. It is very easy for those of us that like Esther find ourselves in positions of privilege and power. It is easy for us to live insulated and comfortable with regard to the plight of the people of God throughout the rest of the world. And the temptation is going to be for her to stay there The temptation for us is to stay there. It's very easy for us within a country that embraces mostly religious freedom, especially compared with the rest of the world, that I'm very thankful for. It's very easy for us to get comfortable, comply with the culture, live insulated from the rest of our brothers and sisters and what they are suffering through. It becomes difficult for us to wake up from our compliance. Will Esther wake up with these, with her fellow Jews? Esther's going to hear about Mordecai's condition. 
and sackcloth and ashes. In the verses that follow, she's going to offer to send him some clothes because she doesn't understand what's going on with him. He's going to refuse those clothes. And so finally, she's going to send a messenger and say, what is going on and why? And Mordecai doesn't just inform her of the situation. He's going to command her to do something about it. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, Mordecai sends word commanding says he commands her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He commands her. And something that we pointed out or that the book of Esther has pointed out to us along the way is we know that Esther always obeys Mordecai. In fact, up to this point, we've seen that her main characteristic is that of compliance. But this is different and this is confusing because now Mordecai is commanding her to comply with the opposite of everything he has ever told her. He'd raised her to keep her Jewish identity hidden. But now he's commanding her to reveal who she is and to do it with conviction. Esther's never been a woman of conviction. She's a person who's compliant. I can't, I can't be this person of conviction. And so she replies to him by saying she cannot comply. Look at verse 11. She sends this message. All the king's servants and the people of the king provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. She says, Mordecai, I can't comply with what you're asking. I'll perish. Archaeologists have actually found reliefs that show Persian kings seated upon a throne with a massive scepter in their right hand, and behind the throne stands a soldier wielding an axe. Like to enter into the presence of the king unbidden was literally to take one's life and death into their own hands. He extends the scepter, life. He doesn't, access right there. Death. And Esther clearly doesn't think that the king would be predisposed to extend the scepter to her right now. She tells Mordecai, I don't think I've got the relationship with the king right now that you think I do. Like, he hasn't called for me in the last month. They've been married for over five years now. Perhaps his affections for Esther are cooling off. Because rest assured, Xerxes is not sleeping alone. And so Esther sends this message to Mordecai. I can't comply with what you're asking. I'll perish. And Mordecai's reply is the quintessential turning point of the book. And it is the place for us to begin seeing what it looks like to stand on the promises of God. What does it look like? It looks like perishing. First thing, I told you we're going to see three. First thing we need to see, standing on the promises of God looks like perishing. We're going to unpack that. Standing on the promises of God looks like perishing. Perishing. See Mordecai's words with me in verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That last sentence of verse 14 is without doubt the most well-known line from the book for such a time as this, but I actually think that the sentence right before it is the most important one in the book. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Esther, you may say that you cannot comply with what I'm asking or you'll perish. But Esther, rest assured, you cannot comply with what Persia is demanding or you'll perish. What's, what does Mordecai mean? What's he saying? Commentators go all over the place with this one, just like they do with most things in the book. And many commentators actually think this is a threat. Like, Esther, if you don't help your people, God is going to judge you. You'll die. Or, maybe some commentators think it's a threat like this. Esther, if you don't help your people, then they will out you. I'll help them. Many commentators think Mordecai is threatening to out her and she will be killed. Is Mordecai threatening Esther into action? No. I feel like I can say that pretty emphatically. I actually think it's a pretty crazy thought. Mordecai has raised this girl. He loves her as his own daughter, as we've seen throughout the book. He's even checking on her constantly up till this day. But even if you set all that aside, I think it's crazy to think that Mordecai is threatening her because Mordecai first, before he brings up anything about her and her family perishing, he brings up, he first expresses confidence that God is definitely, sovereignly going to save the Jewish people. Do you see it? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise. It will rise, not it might Maybe come from, no, it will rise for the Jews from another place. Esther, you can keep silent. God will use someone else. God's not dependent upon you. God will keep his promises. Mordecai is not standing on his confidence in Esther. He's standing on his confidence in the promises of God. He's not threatening Esther because he doesn't need to. Like God saving his people doesn't ultimately depend upon her. Mordecai's not threatening Esther. He's warning her because he loves her. That's true to what we've seen of him throughout the entire book and throughout the rest of the book. He's warning her because he loves her. He's warning her that her silence will be compliance with Persia and it will result in her perishing. How? I, I, I can think of two ways, and I think he means both. Her silence will be compliance with Persia. It will result in her perishing. How? Perhaps Persia will somehow find out her identity as a Jew and put her to death. But what if not? How does she perish then? 
if she keeps silent and no one ever finds out, I think Mordecai is saying to her that she will experience another kind of perishing altogether. Shades, this is so, so important, so vital for us. I believe he is saying, Esther, your identity Remember, this girl has a split identity. She's the only person in the book with two names, right? Esther and Hadassah. She was going to be raised by her parents within the Jewish faith. They gave her this name Hadassah. She's been taught to blend in, given this name Esther. She has this dual identity, and I think that Mordecai is saying, your identity, Hadassah, as a part of the people of God, that will perish. Mike Cosper, in his book on Esther, he explains it this way. He says, Esther could not deny her place with God's people at a time of crisis without cutting herself off from it permanently. In saying, your father's house will perish, Mordecai was essentially telling Esther, your spiritual identity will have ended with your father's death. Withdraw now and be withdrawn forever. Esther, you keep silent. You're basically condemning the Jews to death along with your own Jewish identity. That Jewish name that your parents gave you, Hadassah, if you keep silent, that name will perish from the pages of history. You will always and only be Esther. You may live out your days as a Persian in a palace, but in every way that matters, you will have already perished. What will you live for, Esther? The money and materialism that surrounds you, it will perish. If your identity is wrapped up in that, it'll perish when it perishes. What will you live for? Your sexuality and sensuality that got you to this place, your good look, it will perish. When it perishes, your identity perishes along with it. You live for the power of your position. Your position will perish, and you along with it. Mordecai says, I know that you say you cannot do what I'm asking or you'll perish. But Esther, you cannot do what Persia is demanding or you will perish. Esther, this is your choice. Perish or perish. You can stay silent in an attempt to save your own life, but you will lose your life in every way that matters. You'll perish. Or you can lose your life for the sake of others, for the sake of God and His glory, for the sake of His people, and Esther, even for the good of Persia. This is what's good for Persia. Xerxes is poisoned by Haman right now. Persia is being poisoned by Haman right now. Esther, I'm calling you to sacrifice yourself, to perish for the sake of God's glory, the good of his people, and the good of all of Persia. And even if you perish, you will actually be living in every way that matters. Try to hang on to your life, perish. Lay your life down. And you'll live in every way that matters. Mordecai's words sound really familiar. Like it sounds a lot like somebody else in Mark 8:35 Jesus says whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it 
For what does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Mordecai saying, Esther, what will it profit you to gain your safety, to keep your Persian palace life, but forfeit your soul? Perish in the only way that matters. Esther, don't die for yourself. Die to yourself. Lay down your life for God, the good of his people, the good for all of Persia, and find true life. This is Esther's choice. Perish or perish. And this is our choice, Shades. Perish or perish. Our our situation, it may not be as extreme as Esther's, But it's at least, if we generalize a little bit, it's at least a little bit similar. And that we live in a culture that is not favorably disposed towards the people of God. I don't know if you've noticed, but claiming an identity amongst Christians is not exactly winning in the popularity polls. And more and more, our culture is making moves with which we cannot, as the people of God, comply. Moves that are bowing down and worshiping the idols of money, materialism, sexuality, and power. And anyone who won't bow down to the same things, take the same positions, think the same things, Our culture may not be annihilating them, but they are ostracizing anyone who resists. And so as a result, many Christians are staying silent. I I would say many cultural Christians are staying silent and cutting themselves off from the people of God, who they were really never a part of in the first place. Cutting themselves off from the people of God they used to identify with by complying with the culture. So what do we do? Shades, what what, would we do when being identified as a part of the people of God could cost you your job? That's that's a legitimate reality. Becoming more and more legitimate. What, What do you do when Identifying with the people of God could cost you your reputation, your promotion. It could cost you your influence or cost you some of your relationships or cost you a lot of your social capital. What, what do we do when being identified as a believer in Christ makes us social pariahs and pushes us to the margins? What, what do we do when it pushes us into a position where we are considered to be backwards? Not with the times, antiquated, on the wrong side of history. What, what do we do when people equate our faith with bigotry? What, what do we do when being identified as a part of the people of God will cost us our own comfortable Persian palace life? Like, Do we keep silent and sacrifice our identity as a part of the people of God? We try to gain the whole world and only forfeit our soul. Do do we hang on to all the benefits, money, sex, and power that that we would gain? Do, Do we try to save our life only to lose it in the only way that matters? 
Or do we find true life by laying down our Persian palace, being willing to lose our job, our reputation, our influence, whatever, being willing to lose all of that for the sake of Christ and the gospel and actually live in the only way that matters. What do we do, Shades? Do we perish or perish? Mordecai tells Esther that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to stand on the promises of God. It looks like perishing. Denying yourself taking up your cross, following after Christ. He says it pretty clearly by echoing the language of Joel chapter 2 again. He echoes the language of Joel chapter 2 in verse 14 when he says this. He says, who knows, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Esther, perhaps all of this hasn't happened by chance. Perhaps, I'm just brainstorming here, perhaps God has providentially placed you here. Like in this time, maybe you were born in this time, Esther, in this place, perhaps he gave you those looks so you'd be brought into that palace and be chosen by that king, all for this very purpose, to perish to die to yourself, die to trusting in yourself, die to your own desires, die to a life of compliance and wake up to a life of sacrifice for him and his people and all of Persia. Esther, will you stand on God's promises? It means perishing, dying to yourself. Standing on the promises of God looks like perishing. Shades, the same is true for us. You, right where you're sitting, right now, God has providentially ruled over every aspect of your life. You were born into this time period and not any other. You were born or placed into this country. You were brought into this city. You were brought to this place where you're single or where you're in a family. You were brought to the place where you're in school or in the midst of your vocation. You were brought to this point, put in your position for such a time as this. To perish. To die to yourself and trusting in yourself. To die to a life of compliance and wake up to a life of sacrifice for the glory of God, the good of his people, and our entire culture and world around us. Shades, will you stand on the promises of God? It means perishing. Dying to your What will we do? What will Esther do? Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. And though it is against the law, I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther wakes up. 
She wakes up. She's no longer compliant. Do you catch that in verse 17? She's giving commands. Mordecai has always given her commands, and she's always obeyed Mordecai. It flips. This is the reversal point. Esther wakes up, and she commands Mordecai, and he does everything as Esther had ordered him. She decides to stand on the promises of God by perishing, dying to herself. If I perish, I perish, she says. And in those words, we hear more of what it looks like to stand on God's promises. Number two, standing on God's promises looks like trusting. Yes, it looks like perishing, and part of that is that you've died to yourself and died to trusting in yourself, and it looks like you're trusting in God. If I perish, I perish. Like, don't rush to the end of the story right here. Don't set those words just yet in the context of what you know is coming. Like, hear those words come out of Esther's mouth from her position in the story. Esther doesn't know the end of her story like we do. She doesn't know what's going to happen, and that's what makes this so massively important. Because in choosing to stand on the promises of God, that he will be faithful to rescue his people, Esther is not under the illusion that that means God will preserve her own life. She believes... She is believing, along with Mordecai, that God's going to keep his promises. Do you see what's going on here? She believes God's going to keep his promises, but she knows that he could keep his promises through her death. I perish, I perish. And she trusts anyway. This is so important, Shades, as we talk about what it looks like to stand on the promises of God in the midst of a Persia-like culture, because all too often we think that standing on God's promises by trusting in him means that we are trusting he will be faithful in ways we can immediately see and feel. And if things don't turn out the way that we think they should, we don't feel like they turn out the way we think, then, then he is obviously not being faithful to his promises that we were trusting in. But if the book of Esther teaches us anything, it should be teaching us that trusting in God means we keep standing on his promises even when it looks like he is totally absent. Even when it looks like he is nowhere to be seen. Even when we can't see or feel how he is being faithful. Trusting in him means saying, if I perish, I perish. And I will still trust in him. I will still stand on his promises. Esther sounds a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right here, standing in front of a fiery furnace where they say our God is able to save us from being burned up in the flames. But even if not, O king, even if he lets us be incinerated before we hit the floor, we won't bow. We trust him that much. If I perish, I perish. I will stand I will still trust in him, still stand on his part. If I lose my, my, my job by being identified with the people of God, if I lose my money, if I lose my social status, if in the eyes of the world I come in last place, I will stand on his promise that the last will be first. If I become a social pariah because of my convictions about Scripture and about what it says, if I become mocked because of my views about sexuality and purity, I'll stand on his promise that the pure, in, the pure in heart shall see God. If I lose all power and influence in this world, I will stand on his promise that his kingdom presently looks like a mustard seed. 
And the day is coming when it will grow into the largest of trees and it will be the only kingdom that rules in power forever. I'll stand on those promises even if I can't see them or feel them right now. If I perish, I perish. I'm still trusting. And we can see how Esther goes about trusting. Not in herself, but in God. See what she does. What she does is what Joel chapter 2, echoing it here again, Joel chapter 2, 15, tells her she should do. Joel 2, 15 says this, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. And that's precisely what she does. She calls for the people of God to gather fast for three days. Don't eat, don't drink. Do this on her behalf, interceding for her fasting, they're praying, standing on the promises of God by trusting. Realize what the people at large are being asked to do when they are gathered for this fast. I mean, imagine, I'm Mordecai and I come to you, okay, so I know things look bleak. Like in 11 months, we all die. But here's what's going to happen. We're going to fast and we're going to pray because Queen Esther, she's Jewish, by the way, you didn't know that because she's compromised in every way possible and completely complied with Persia. But she's a woman of conviction now, and she's going to go in and beg the king for all of our... I'm just realizing how dumb this plan sounds as I say it out loud. The people have to trust. They have to trust that God can and does work through compromised people. It's part of the good news of Esther, part of the gospel of Esther. It's one of the beautiful reasons I love seeing that she's not a perfect heroine because it means there's hope for God to work through a compromised and compliant person like me. She calls for all the people to trust in God along with her. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to trust. That's what prayer is. It's a turning from trusting in oneself to trust in God. That's what fasting is. It's turning from saying, I need the things of this world to say more than anything, more than even food. I need God. My very life is dependent upon Him more than anything else. I trust Him. Do we trust in this way? Amidst our culture, if we're going to stand on the promises of God, do we trust in this way enough to fast and to pray? I know I know that in my own life, when I find that I'm not taking time to pray, it's usually because I'm trusting in myself. I don't have time to pray because i got to get things done. It's like I don't believe that prayer is getting something done. I don't have time for prayer because I need to be doing something. As if prayer is not doing something. It's trusting someone other than myself. Do we, do we want to know what it looks like to stand on the promises of God in the midst of Persia? Esther shows us it looks like trusting in this way, enough to fast and to pray. Esther dives to trusting in herself. She trusts in God. Standing on his promises looks like perishing. It looks like trusting and finally, the last thing we need to see this morning, number three, standing on the promises of God looks like acting. 
As soon as we start talking about trusting and trusting in the sovereign God and His work, there's a fear that could make us all become very, very passive. Esther doesn't become passive. Yes, she turns from trusting in herself to trusting in God through prayer, but she doesn't become passive. No, she's praying for God to empower her actions. And when she does take action, it's in a way that puts his power on display. See that with me. She, she fasts. She doesn't eat or drink for three days. What do you imagine she looked like? What do you imagine she felt like, sounded like, when she hasn't drunk anything for three days? It hasn't quit speaking because she's been pouring out her heart to the Lord. People didn't pray silently in ancient days. They thought that was weird. Hoarse, emaciated, pale. I mean, for a woman known for her beauty, I don't imagine this would go unnoticed. I don't imagine she would be looking her best. For a woman of such wealth, she must have looked poor. For a woman of power, she must have looked weak. And this is the point. We're going to cheat into chapter 5 a little bit right here. Chapter 5 and verse 1 makes it even more emphatic. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. She puts on her royal robes. But can you imagine the, the contrast? Clothes, the outfit, the uniform, if you will. These, these clothes declare her Persian identity of wealth, beauty. Declares her position of power. But that's just the clothes because her body tells a different story. Her body identifies her with the people of God. And she comes in utter weakness and humility. She is embodying nothing that Persia values. Nothing that Persia considers powerful. We're going to see this even more next week when she's compared with Haman. Like, is this her plan to win the king's favor? Weakness. This is, this is foolishness. But our God is a God who loves to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He loves to use the weak things in the world to shame the strong. And that process begins in verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won grace, favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? He knows something's wrong. She needs something. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half my kingdom. Esther has taken the way of weakness, and already it is proving to be powerful. Like, 
what everyone in Persia would have considered foolish is already proving to be wise. And Shades, this is the way we take action and stand on the promises of God in the midst of our own Persia. We don't take action through withdrawal from the culture. We don't take action through making war on the culture. We take action through humbly engaging the culture by taking the way of weakness, the way of the cross. We we don't use the weapons of our culture to try and achieve influence, money, sexuality, power. Esther had all those advantages, and she laid them aside. She came in weakness, in humility. Does that sound familiar? Someone who has all power, all authority, lays it aside, empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way of Esther is the way of the cross, which the world sees as weak. But it's the very power of God. The world sees the way of the cross as foolishness, but it's the very wisdom of God. And this is the way we are meant to stand on the promises of God amidst our own Persia. Not through withdrawal or war, but by taking the way of weakness, the way of the cross. And through our weakness, the very power of God will be put on display. 2 Corinthians 4-7 says that we have this treasure in jars of clay and our broken, weak bodies. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power Power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, we come to the world armed not with money, sexuality, and power. No, we come to the world armed with but one weapon, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the world considers weak and foolish, and the gospel turns the world upside down, proving itself to be the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. First to the Jew who thinks that it's a stumbling block and that it is weakness, and second to the Gentile who thinks that it is foolishness. Shades, have we awoken from our compliance with our culture? Not in order to withdraw from it, not in order to make war on it, but to love it by becoming weak. By identifying ourselves with the people of God, even if it means that we lose everything that Persia thinks is powerful. Even if it means that we perish. Or do we assert ourselves to gain the same weapons of power that Persia does? We can take the way of weakness, the way of the cross. We can take it, be empowered to take it, because Christ took it first. The gospel tells us that there was an edict that had gone out because of our sin that all of us should perish. And we were all under an edict of destruction. And Christ 
Christ entered into the court not of a corrupt king like Xerxes, but of a righteous king, the righteous king of the universe. Christ alone could enter that court, and Christ alone did. He entered into the court of God the Father by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. He took the executioner's axe that we might touch the scepter of the Father in peace. He perished so that we wouldn't have to. Shades, this is why I said earlier that standing on the promises of God looks like perishing. It's not. It looks like it from Persia's perspective because you lose everything that Persia thinks makes someone powerful. But you gain Christ. Standing on the promises of God looks like perishing because you lose money and sex and power, but we gain Christ. He's our life that will never perish, our treasure forever. If you spend your life trying to find its value and meaning and money, sex and power, then you will lose your life because all of that will perish. And if you've tied your life to them, your life perishes with them. But if you lose your life to Christ, then you gain true life because he's a treasure that never perishes. And your life is bound up with his. You see how Christ going to the cross first empowers us to take the way of the cross. We can deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him in the way of weakness because his cross guarantees that we get him. We can stand on that promise in the midst of our own Persia. Will we stand on it? Will will we act on it? Will we We act on it even though it makes us look weak. Will we trust in the promise that we get Christ? Though we lose everything else, we get Christ and he is our life. Will we trust in that even though it makes us look foolish? Will we stand on the gospel promises of God even though it looks like perishing? Lord, grant that we do so. Amen.